Welcome everybody to the, uh, this may just be the case. Do we? <laughs> Welcome everybody to the, where the heck are all the panelists edition of legal tech week. Uh, it, this is uh, Bob Ambrosi and I'm, let's see what's I'm getting little messages here. Everything with technical difficulties this week. Anyway, this is Bob Ambrosi. I am uh, the host of this thing and the host of another podcast called law next and write a blog called, uh, Law sites, and uh, we have before you this broad array of panelists, uh, as you see here. And uh, before I get to introducing all of them, let me say that we have had a steady drop off of our regular panelists today, as the day has gone. We had we had a full panel yeah. uh, when the day started today, uh, and uh, email after email has had people have to drop off for. Uh, quote unquote emergency reason, 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 so meaning they probably got something better to do on a Friday afternoon. Um, but uh, can't we are, we're going to plug be. along, uh, and but I'm going to I am going to open uh, open a, put out an invitation to uh, people out there uh, in the viewing audience uh, if if you want to get on video and chat a little bit. Uh, raise your hand or if you want to just get on audio uh, and chat a little bit if you have something you'd like to talk about or comment on uh please go ahead and uh raise your hand and I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that otherwise let me get around to introducing all the panelists starting with our only panelists yeah hi uh i'm joe patrice <laughs> i'm from a senior editor from above the law i am a uh I have a podcast called Thinking Like a Lawyer, and I also I, I also saw all the panelists drop off today, and I am charging the marshal of the Supreme Court to conduct a just as thorough an investigation <laughs> as they just concluded into the Dobbs leak to figure this out. Uh, great. I can't wait to get the results of that. I mean, actually, that, that's not a bad place to start. You were just telling me before we uh, before we started uh, mm -hmm. that you you kind of finally dove into that report all all 30 pages of it or whatever. It's not all right. that extensive of a report, right? But uh, no, uh, it's yeah. not. <laughs> um, I mean, the big winner this week is Earl Warren, because the Warren <laughs> report looks like it's the most unimpeachable <laughs> thing ever, right? Uh, yeah, so the, the the report is out. It, it was an interesting, took me back to my days of practice. I did, you know, I was a general litigator at first, but ultimately I was practicing mostly in white collar, which meant a lot of internal investigations and reading internal investigation reports that other folks had put together. And, you know, when with that experience, I come into it with something of a skeptical eye of what uh, an internal investigation looks like. And, you know, I, it's just riddled with the sort of red flags that you see in that practice, you know, very hyper-specific language in places where general language would do, uh, vague terminology where you know, something, something very obvious would do. Uh, and it came across that basically what they did was identify that they only wanted to talk to the least likely people who could have done the leaking. And then they concluded those people didn't do it. Uh, they, but they did this all with language that made it seem like they talked to everybody, but the more you dug into it, the more obvious it was that they did not, uh, and didn't talk to, in fact, to the most obvious people who could have been the vector. So with all that said, one thing they I did do, the though, Supreme Court justices, you know, e. the people who had motive to do it. Yeah. 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 Uh, E.g. in this case, or I.E. Actually, I think they could both fit. Um, anyway, 
So there was a tech aspect to it, of course, because they did engage in um, analysis of cell phones that they seized from the clerks, but they also did some review of the IT superstructure of the Supreme Court, which was interesting. They, they more or less decided there were no hacks, which obvious, uh, not obvious, but I mean, pretty obvious. Uh, but they also then would go through and look to see if anyone had printed it out and found that most of their printers, they couldn't track whether anything had ever been sent to them. Uh, they also felt, they, they also determined that there were a limited number, but still some paper copies flying around, which, you know, is not exactly the safest way to handle something you want to keep confidential. Uh, they found out that there were some people who had had sent things to printers that may not be local, and they had no way of tracking that. Uh, it really seemed like there's, for an organization that wants to think that these things are super confidential, for better or worse, they seem to have very little handle on who could actually get at things if they wanted them. It's also pretty amazing that there are, what would you say, 85 or something people who had yeah. access to this thing while it's floating around? I mean, how how many yeah. people even work at the Supreme Court? I, I have no idea. I'm sure it's a lot bigger than that, but that seems like a lot of people to have access so to a draft so, opinion. Yeah, they, they said they talked to 120, I think, employees total and then determined that only 82 of them could have had access. But, you know, you start down the road of, you, you know, the, the justices all have four or five clerks, there's, you know, secretaries, there's people who are typesetting and stuff like it, it's, it builds up pretty quickly. Uh, when there's nine, nine chambers, you know, you already are, you're already starting out at about 4550 before you start dealing with support staff. So it gets there. So uh, for anybody who's just joining, uh, our almost our entire panel has bailed on us today at the last minute uh, for various emergencies, so-called, who knows really, uh, that have come up uh, their way, uh, although at least one of them is legitimately sick, and I'm sorry about that. Um, and uh, so we are inviting uh, those of you out there in the audience, uh, if you want to join into the conversation, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll let you talk. Or if you even want to go on video, we can promote you to a panelist. And I see we have a hand raised. I don't know if that's a mistake or not, but we'll try it. Pam. Oh, that's is that Pam or is that Josh? Hi, Bob. It's Joshua. Can you hear me? Yeah. Your name yep. says Pam. Oh, I grabbed uh, Pam's link. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, an article that was published in uh, Legal Tech News. It was the UK legal tech predictions for 2023. Oh, I missed so, that. I'll throw it in the chat for everyone. They went they went a little crazy with their predictions this year. They did like weeks of predictions of legal tech. Uh, yeah. Things. Yeah. Uh, one, I, the first thing oh, I thought oh, oh, was... We have another panelist. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I can turn the camera on, can I? Uh, I can promote you. You want you want your camera on? Yeah. I can promote you to panelist. I think I've promoted you. Did that work? No, I've lost you altogether. You you are a panelist now. You should be able to, there you go. It, there it you popped go. Me All in. Right. Yeah. And now Gene is here. Gene, we, we were, well, I was just showing. We were recruiting guys, people so. from the audience. We're recruiting That's from the great. audience, yeah. I, I was about to run out to outside my office and see if I could bring some people in off the street. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh. It's been one of those days. <laughs> but jo So Josh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. 
Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I thought should be pointed out is the question about cybersecurity and our law firms taking it seriously. Um, and I, I think the yes and no answer from Nick Watson was the one that made me laugh out loud. Uh, law firms are putting together these policies like don't click on spam, but they're not really talking about why the policies need to be in place. And I, I think importantly, nobody there talked about investment in cybersecurity, um, which I think is interesting. Like if we're going to secure ourselves, why aren't we removing the risk from the hands of the individual users and instead putting in the technology to prevent that type of stuff? Uh, and there are lots of things that do that for us, right? There are email scanners that take care of that. There's better permissioning when it comes to remote access of files. And I just don't see this being talked about at all in most law firms, how to implement cybersecurity at the technology level rather than um, asking lawyers not to F it up. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm late, but I actually, that doesn't reflect my experience. I mean, mm. I've been at several law firms and maybe it depends on the size of the firm where mm. there were spam filters and spam blockers and things go through. In fact, every firm I've worked at also does this sort of Pavlovian thing where they periodically send out emails to see who they can catch screwing up. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think there is, I mean, I don't know any large law firm that doesn't have a chief uh, cybersecurity officer and, and there is technology behind it. But I think, I don't think anybody's come up with a perfect technology that absolutely anticipates every way uh, cybersecurity can break. I think that's where the, the real challenge is. I do agree with you. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, there is mandatory training at least twice a year on how not to screw it up, you know, where I work. Yeah, I mean, no, no matter, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go yeah. ahead Joe. oh no, no, I was going to shake, kind of pivot a little. You go. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I you know, remember talking to uh, Alvin Tejabulia at Net, Net Documents a couple of years ago about everything Net Documents is trying to do to enforce cybersecurity and security. And but his point is just that that end user is always going to be the weak link. And it's almost it's just so hard, no matter what you do, to prevent the vulnerability of the stupid end user uh, or the gullible end user. And uh, but you're right, Josh, I think that more can be invested in technology to monitor even at that level than maybe certain, I, you know, what Gene say about maybe larger firms is true, but I think smaller and mid-sized firms are certainly not thinking yeah. about that. And, and what's interesting oh, is right. I, I think it's just like any tech that comes into the legal industry, right? Um, what we see is sometimes it's a heavy investment. It's a big lift in terms of implementation. But as it becomes more and more ubiquitous elsewhere, the reasonableness of not using these things starts to come into question. Um, and right. we know that legal insurance providers, for example, are just like fleeing solo and small law firms for cybersecurity. Uh, they're just, those firms just aren't adopting what are now deemed reasonable measures. And so I think that's the conversation we need to be having around it. Yeah.
You know, I, well, what I was going to pivot it to a little bit is just because it's top of mind because I wrote it earlier today. Uh, it, it's not just cybersecurity. It's the it's a lot of the tech that we have out there that could be handled at a higher level than individual people pushing buttons, which is we talked on this show back in the day when it first broke the story of the associate who billed 277 hours to a document review where he only ever looked at 20 documents and it took Denton's three months to figure this out. And that person uh, had their license suspended this week. So I wrote a follow-up to it, but, but what got, and what got me about it was, and how I shifted this story into a tech story was, you know, we have ways in which the technology can tell you, hey, wait a minute, nobody's opened this thing yet. Uh, we have ways in which we can have project management give you ticklers about like, hey, I sent them off to look at 420 documents three months ago. What happened to that that should have been done in two days? Uh, we have billing software that should have caught that, oh my God, this we haven't sent out a bill yet. Why not? And why is this guy billed all this? Uh, there are ways in which you can do all of this without a human being being involved. And Denton's is you know, one of the big firms. I mean, I could see a small firm not knowing uh, that these exist, but I assume that they have all this technology, but, you know, that's where the weak link comes in. People not letting the technology do the check, thinking they have to do it. Yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna, my, my offer is still open. If there are people out there who wanna just, just get on audio to, to chat a little bit uh, or even join us here on video, you're, you're welcome to do that. Just raise your hand and I can, I can let you in. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I wonder if in some ways this segues, not a, not a brilliant segue, but Joe, one of the stories you highlighted uh, this week was not your story, but one of Stephanie's stories, who's not here to talk about it. Uh, but there is some tie-in between uh, mm -hmm. what we're talking about here in terms of spending on cybersecurity and what that story was about. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. I think technically it's Cassandra's story, but obviously um, a legal tech news story, uh, right. which, you know, Everlaw uh, brought in a new CFO and uh, Cassandra had this interview uh, with, with him about, you know, his thoughts on the industry and, you know, all well and, you know, they not really interested. I didn't really find the like back and forth about that as interesting as he focused on, oh, you know, with economic downturns and stuff like that, this is where people can start, you know, firms are going to have to start focusing on the critical legal tech as opposed to the discretionary legal tech. And it got me thinking, what discretionary legal tech? I mean, I, I get if you're if you're a there, it can be discretionary if like you don't want to like arm, you have some small practice group and you don't want to spend on them because they aren't generating much. But within within a field of practice, which assume you assume they all are, it's not like there's people making legal tech that's kind of frivolous. Uh, uh, there's not like a oh you know we're not gonna we're not gonna buy dastardly this this month. You know the service that puts twirling mustaches on all the video deposition clips. Uh, that filter is just too much for us. You know, like it, nobody's doing that. Like the, the the technology that's being made because legal tech is serious people, the tech is all about making the workflow work. Eh? There, there's not like these one-off, uh, yeah, these one-off uh, frivolous things. And so, yeah, I, 
I understood why he was saying it, but there wasn't really, it was right at the end of the article. And all I could think was, I don't know what's discretionary anymore. Right. I'm getting pinged here. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I think the enterprise-wide products are are less discretionary, but certainly there are niche products out there, you know, like visualization tools and, um, you know, sort of complex workflow tools dealing with one specific kind of workflow. And I think, you know, it, it it would be nice to have all of it. And then the other problem is redundancy because there are products where, 75% of it is, you know, is redundant, but 25% is unique. And then you have to figure out, do I buy it for the 25% that's unique? I mean, that's always been a challenge, you know? That's been a challenge in legal research for a while, right? Yeah, Yeah. I was going to raise the exact same thing, right? The word perfect word split that some old partners keep handling on, right? Um, SharePoint, while we also have cloud services, there's a ton of duplication in a lot of law firms. Yeah. Or uh, Westlaw versus LexisNexis versus Bloomberg Law versus Fastcase versus or, Case yeah, Tech. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not a problem, Cleo has. Just no competitors out there. Uh, well, <laughs> not, that's not, not, that's not entirely true. Um, <laughs> and there are there are people who do features better. Right, uh, you know, we're secure yeah. enough to admit that there there are some places where some people just really prefer a certain type of interface or workflow, right? And that's what's better for them, and so they'll they'll cobble these things together. Um, yeah. And you're right, uh, Joe. I think there is going to be some belt tightening, and it'll be interesting to see who moves through that. Yeah. And then the other problem with partnerships is partnerships. You know, every partner is an owner and they are the people who can drive the one off and sort of prevent firms from pivoting into a completely new efficient workflow. You know, and I think that's where a lot of the trade-offs are because you have to make so many compromises. Yeah, I think Dennis Dennis raised a really snarky but good point. Yeah, (laughs) discretionary tech is what somebody else wants to buy. Oh, Mm -hmm. So, Gene, you listed a bunch of good stories this week, and I'm glad you're here to, with us and we're able to make it. Um, wh- where do you what, what's where would you want to start? Uh, well, I think the one that's girl, really girl Scouts or flash drives. No, well, I thought the flash drives. I thought it was more of a pivot. You know, I wasn't here the week that the story broke about uh, Jonathan O'Brien and Proskauer, and I, I, I eons ago I did work as at Proskauer. Uh, I'm sure there's nobody there that I knew, but. I mean, uh, there. I was really upset when flash drives were banned from law firms, and I was furious about. It. And it happened so long ago, I couldn't believe that it was even possible for even an uh, who I think he was the essentially the executive director to direct. And it was in two different departments. I understand it was an e-discovery person and an accounting person. Both overrode the firm policies to put things on flash drives for him. But, you know, the other thing is, and now he is suing uh, Proskauer saying it's uh, retaliatory. They're trying to ruin his. And then in the meantime, the firm he was going to has withdrawn. Paul Hastings has withdrawn their offer. But, you know, the other interesting pivot I thought this could be is there could be an entire session, a a show on 
stupid ways people have used technology because you know you know people try and download all sorts of inappropriate things i mean i i've, I've sometimes heard you know it folks say they can always tell who's leaving the firm because they start to see these massive downloads of documents and and i even once had a, a, i got a phone call from one of the major vendors that their computers had slowed because someone at my firm an associate who was leaving was trying to download an entire state code. So, you know, I don't think that would happen today, but I mean, people still behave. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think any vendor has a server that could be slowed by one person, but it is incredible how lawyers sometimes do. And I guess administrators as well do incredibly foolish things inside of law firms. Yeah, but this guy was just loading it all, that all down for a two-week vacation, right? That's his. Yeah, that's he his was going to go on vacation, mm -hmm. and but they bought it. I mean, they, <laughs> they, they, you know, there wasn't a control in place, even though the entire firm worked out under the the rule that there were no flash drives. He was able to overcome that in two different departments. Yeah. Um, we got another hand raise. So I can I can just tell kind of generic stories where we see that all the time at Clio, actually. Yeah. Where yeah. somebody will will ask, like, this employee left. I suspect they took things. What logs can we pull up? Uh, and so we have to judge and weigh the service on that. Um, and one of our official policies is don't get in the middle. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, we are not we are not uh, your ODR when it comes to your electronic files. Uh, and it's something you have to learn as a legal tech vendor. It's very interesting. Yeah, you know, and, and, and obviously, this was uh, somebody who was working in kind of the business side of the firm. It it raises some interesting wrinkles, because obviously, I deal with some recruiting stuff uh, as part of my other hat, too. And, mm -hmm. and you know, as an attorney, firms that you're thinking of moving to are going to want to see writing samples, uh, obviously anonymized with client information taken out of it. But like, you know, that's a thing you're going to have to be able to download at some point or else you're not going to be able to go. Yeah. But we've, got, we've got another audience participant here. I'm going to let Buzz Brueggemann in to uh, talk. Buzz, how you doing? Can... Excellent. Uh, can you see me? I can see all you guys. We you know, it's, you. Yeah. it's it's funny. Uh, I spent we see a nice night. picture of you, Buzz. Yeah, I. Pardon me. We see I a nice picture of actually you. Actually, with kind of a color. So, um, uh, I spent one lifetime practicing law and uh, built active boards, and I'm talking to lawyers every single day. And uh, I'm totally fascinated by the idea that you guys are talking about sophisticated problems with people who don't really know how to type. I mean, there, there, there is a generation of lawyers. I mean, one of my friends is a senior partner at Perkins Coie. He doesn't know how to type. And when I've tried to explain to him how this stuff works, and he's billing his time at six, eight, $900 an hour, he, he's not going to spend one second. So I look at this almost in this long tail, okay? And the long tail says, if you're in your 40s, you may know how to type. If you're 30s, you certainly know how to type. If you're in your 20s, you do know how to type. 
And all those guys understand what to do and how to do it, but they don't have any control over budgets and policies or anything because the guys, the dinosaurs, the elephants heading for the graveyard, they control all that stuff. So that's observation one. Hey, I'm a dinosaur and I had to take typing when I was like in high school. I had to learn how to keep, you know, uh, mm. keyboard type. Well, they I took typing typewriters, that's the, but that's where the girls were. They weren't in. in, in <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but the second observation that I would make is that the guys doing plaintiff's work and trial work, they're the ones that invest in technology. It, 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 it's not the AMLA two to 500 firms. I mean, they may be the AMLA 200 and above. Different firms. technology, different yeah. technology. I wouldn't, I'm not yeah. sure I'd agree with you. They're not investing in technology. But. Well, they, you know, I, I, I would beg to differ. I think they invest in lots of technology and they're much more nimble and they're quicker to respond and they make decisions faster because they eat what they kill. Yeah. I mean, the people who are billing the billable hour model I mean, I saw a firm that does municipal finance work, and all of a sudden they got forced to do it on a flat fee basis, away from the billable hour to flat fees. And once they went to a flat fee model, they it was like a born again conversion experience where everything changed overnight. So you know when we, you know, we look at this sort of. Um, not from a one-size-fits-all perspective, but we say, well, why aren't they dealing with cybersecurity? They don't even know how to, I mean, you're asking people to deal with cybersecurity that don't know how to type. And yeah. when they're talking to people who are doing the cybersecurity work, they, they don't have a framework or a language set that would cause them to think about this stuff. And, and I, I watch these conversations float by and I go, you know, we, we need a reset. You know, and you know, maybe the procrastinator thing, which is fascinating to me. Um, but I, I, you know, you need to, I mean, some big law firm needs to get knocked off for millions upon millions of dollars before. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's point. Come. The point is well taken that whether they even know how to type, that they are so, uh, some, there's certainly plenty of lawyers out there still who are so unsophisticated about technology that that's why they continue to be a, a weak link for uh some of the uh some of the uh ransomware attacks and other things that that, that come along um well, and that's well, why the whole duty of technology competence becomes so important and training becomes so important uh and uh and i, and, and I know uh, bob yeah. i know i know bob you've championed that idea but it kind of it feels to me like it's such a low bar yeah. you know i mean yeah. such a shocking you know bar no bar there's no CLA requirements. There's no testing. I mean, um, who's the guy who? Um, yeah. Um, who who had the competency test and? Um, um, Casey Flaherty. Pardon me. Yeah. Casey Flaherty. Yeah, Casey Flaherty. He did a great job. But when you looked at the stuff he was asking, do you know how to create a PDF? You know, yeah. I mean. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't get it. Next case. But he yeah. was trying to create the pressure from the client side. He was saying clients should demand this and like firms should have to show that, that their associates can pass competency tests. And I think he was really only focused on associates. I don't think he was really dealing with partners much in his uh, evangeliz in evangelization. Maybe because it was pointless. <laughs> Possibly. <Yeah. laughs> Joshua um, can't hear yeah. you. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, Josh, you're muted, but yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> I was just going to say, Buzz, what do you think about New York State requiring cybersecurity CLE now? You know, I'd have to see what the classes of the courses look like and what the requirements were. I'd, I'd have to see what the, what that's all about. I mean, I uh, uh, it, it, it just feels like it's something that's going to take so long to ripple through the, the, the you know the practice. I mean, but um, again, you know, when somebody gets really dinged. You know, there's a moment where everybody wakes up and pays attention, and and yeah. and that has a half life of maybe I don't know, three days, five days, ten days, whatever. But um, I, I I just I mean I I I kind of marvel, and I I mean what the single hardest thing that I th if those of us try and sell legal technology have to experience is getting people to modify their behavior one degree. Mm -hmm. yep. This tiny little course correction of one degree to get them to, to change a tiny bit. And I swear to God, it's like this ocean going tanker and we're these tiny little tugs and we're trying to get them pointed one degree over. Now, ultimately, it has a real impact, but man, harder than it should be. Yeah. Hundreds harder than yeah. it should be. Not, well, not well, thanks for not, adding. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, not to knock the idea of bar testing for competency, but if it's if it's broad enough that everybody can pass it, is it useful at all? Because maybe the only thing you need to teach people is hire an expert to set up your systems and teach you how to use it. Because how much could the average law, I mean, because there are people who spend, you know, who get, you know, master's degrees, PhDs in cybersecurity. And I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I don't know. I wonder what could be taught in a bar level class about cybersecurity other than hire an expert. Right. Yeah, but I think that's I think actually that's important. I mean, I think that's kind of goes to the duty of tech competence too. I think part of the reason that any kind of education around that is important is so that you know it when you see it. When you, you know that there's an issue that you do need to hire an expert for, you do need to bring somebody in on. And, you know, I mean, to go back to Buzz's original point about lawyers not knowing how to type, uh, if you don't know how to type, then you may not understand that there's an issue at all there. Uh, and th the training is obviously just scratching the surface in terms of the knowledge you would need, but it's maybe enough to get you to say, okay, maybe there's an issue here. Maybe there's something I should be thinking about. And well, and what's what's interesting, we've discussed this before, Bob, is that very rarely do we see like a professional grievance filed about a lawyer's tech competency. Right. It's about the impact on the case that tech might have like avoided or resolved, but it's they never say my lawyer used Windows XP and that's clearly tech incompetency. Yeah. So, all right, well, uh, Buzz, I'm going to demote you back to an audience member and uh, encourage other, thanks for thanks for that comment and thanks for chatting with we'll, us. And I, we'll, we'll always have Paris, but no. Okay, <laughs> well, we, were we in Paris together? I don't remember that, uh, but uh, okay, see ya. Um, it might have been. It could have been. We did have Jesse Jack. I should. We did have Jesse Jackson together, uh, and Buzz and I can tell that story some other time. Uh, uh, it had to do with ABA Tech Show and out to dinner, and sure enough, Jesse Jackson sat down at the table next to us, and Buzz immediately tried to sell him active words. Uh, I don't okay. think he bought it. I don't think he, maybe he did. I don't know, but he probably would be would have been president had he bought active words. Uh, 
Uh, you know, I was thinking, I, I actually had a moment the other day, like just yesterday, in fact, where I was thinking about that. The first vote I ever vote I ever cast in my life for, for Jesse Jackson in 84. I was in second grade and they had like a, everyone vote in the room. And I, knowing nothing about it, was like, I mean, it seems like he's talking about how people should all treat people better. So I'll vote for him. Yeah, good. Um uh so uh well josh i assume you want to hang out you're on cam you want to hang around for a bit or you're a a returning panelist here but again anybody in the audience who wants to uh, make a comment go ahead and let us know but um so What's uh next? so joe <laughs> yes okay uh yeah well i i don't know so uh, let's see we talked a little bit about I, I maybe i should just for a moment at least give a nod to what was probably the actual legal tech news of the week, <laughs> which was uh, the Xtero uh, acquisition of Zapproved, Zapproved, is Zapproved, um, mm -hmm. which was, uh, we don't know how much it was for, but uh, a pretty notable deal in the e-discovery world. And, uh, uh, you know, I, there are a couple of really interesting sort of twists to it. One is that the, the two companies started the same year, in the same city, both started in 2008, Portland, Oregon. Uh, the uh, the CEOs and founders of the two companies were kind of friendly with each other over the years, and you know, talked to talk shop and talk business, uh, and uh, you know, a different focus. I mean, Xterra was a, a much broader platform; it had kind of gotten into this whole world of uh, governance, risk, and compliance, as well as e-discovery, uh, and it's particularly forensics over the last few years. Whereas uh, Zapproved was more focused on corporate legal, more on legal holds, uh, a little bit on uh, on review, uh, but it looks like a nice, a complementary relationship. Um, and and you know, one of the other significant aspects of it is that uh, it was a woman-founded and woman-run legal tech company. We we've talked uh, any number of times on this program about the dearth uh, of, of women executives in legal tech uh, and women founders in legal tech get, been definitely been getting better over the last few years. And I, I feel like we've made a lot of progress just over the last couple of years on that front. Uh, but still, here's a, a significant exit. Well, we don't know if it's significant. We assume it was significant uh, for a, a woman legal tech founder. Uh, so uh, that was kind of the... Uh, the legal tech industry, the inside industry news, I guess, of the week. Um, I'm sure you all have a lot of comments on that. Uh, for me, it just looked like <laughs> further consolidation in the e-discovery marketplace. Well, and that too, yeah. Right. Yeah, and so while, while I was happy for the, the parties involved, uh, it seems to me to be the trend, right? That uh, all of these e-discovery companies are, are rapidly consolidating. And the real question is going to be who comes out on top. A lot of consolidation, and and at the same time, does it seem like there are fewer new new launches in, in legal tech lately than there? I mean, for a while there was just such a surge of, of, of startups coming along. There are still startups coming along, but it just seems like it's gone to more of a slower flow uh, of new startups coming along. Uh, than than we were seeing for a while. Uh, does anybody see, feel that way, or am I just maybe not hearing Gene, as much? You're muted. I don't know. 
I, I thought that a year ago, and I actually had wondered whether the pandemic had had an impact, at least on the, on the, the area that I cover, uh, it, legal research, which ties into analytics and workflow and other things, I definitely felt there had been a slowdown. And one vendor actually said to me that they wondered whether the existence of conferences created an energy and, ex and an acceleration to innovate because they had a place they needed to get to and show something off. And people hate showing up at conferences without something new to show off. So, right. you know, I, that's that was one thing I was feeling. And I also think last year was fairly quiet. There were a couple of new things. Westlaw launched Precision. Um, th there were a couple of developments. Um, Lexus did its fact and issue finder. Um, you know, Fastcase is always doing something. Case Text is always doing something. But th there weren't that many major and there are no new startups. You know, I don't see that many startups, except we have avoid we've managed to avoid the the you know what so far. Chat GDP, you know, oh, yeah. I do yeah. wonder. Oh, yeah, that that isn't going to become the like the, the thing that drives a lot of spin-off technologies, you know, by the second half of this year, are we going to see a lot of things dabbling in that space? Yeah. You know, not to I've, give a I've pitch. already seen a couple. Oh. Yeah. Uh, ahead, not Jeff. to give a pitch. No, yeah, no, nothing. Not to give a pitch for going back to back episodes of this show if you've missed them, but they're important. But our predictions episode, that was one of my predictions. I think the conferences point is well taken that I hadn't at, put into that show. But one thing I said was part of the reason there's not as many startups is who drives a lot of the great startups in this space. It's so many of them I can point to great associates who like were fourth or fifth years at a place and they left that place to do something else. The last few years, the big law marketplace was so hot, nobody was leaving. We're now going to start seeing the tech savvy, smart associate who has an idea be like, all right, let's go do something. I, I agree. I, I, actually I actually think that has legs. Yeah, and I agree with that as well, because they're going to be able to find technical co-founders mm -hmm. due to a lot of the mm -hmm. big technology companies laying off. Mm -hmm. So Joe beat me to the punch. I was coming at it from the tech side, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that was my big prediction in our prediction show. And I, uh, I I feel like every, you know, it's only been a couple weeks since, but I feel like I'm more on solid ground than I was even then. Yeah. Although the other thing I've seen a lot more lately are people from completely outside of legal hearing the buzz about legal tech and getting into legal tech. And I think with, with the, in the GPT 3.5 era uh, coming up the year to year ahead, the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a lot more people who are playing around with it, who are, who are, uh, uh, you know, AI scientists playing around in other fields. We're going to be looking over at legal and saying, wow, there's some real potential there. And we're going to uh, think about products we can launch in that area. So I think we're also going to see startups coming from people who are completely foreign. And we're already seeing that, but people completely foreign to legal tech. Um, all right. Uh, Joe, your turn. <laughs> okay. Um, so what do you want to do next? Uh, oh, I don't know. What do you want to do? What are you guys well, doing this okay, weekend? So Oh, yeah, yeah. No. So um, I, I actually don't have to go anywhere this weekend. It's lovely. Uh, but no. Uh, so this is a story that 
both Gene and I, I have on our. I didn't even tell us how the Navy debate went. It went fine. Uh, you know, we were, I think we lost in octafinals to Georgia. Um, not a vice. So the sweet 16 kind of around, uh, you know, we beat Navy a couple of times along the way, which is all always sweet. Um, but uh, so Gene and I both have this story at different stages of development in our in our like planning memo. Uh, Gene, you wanted to talk a little bit about memo the Girl being Scout. a very strong word for that. <laughs> right, yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, you were going to talk overstated. Yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't know that Radio City had anything to do with Madison Square Garden. I didn't know our stories were connected. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting about that. The the more insane thing is that the woman who and I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the woman who was kicked out of Radio City while she was escorting a Girl Scout troop to the yeah. Rockettes show is a lawyer part of the Madison Square Garden's longstanding policy to not let lawyers who are averse to them go to Madison Square Garden, which we'll get into in a second. But she's she not only is, did you not necessarily know that that Radio City was part of that, she's not even her firm isn't even involved in a case against either Madison Square Garden or Radio City. It's against a restaurant that Madison Square Garden has a minority interest in, as far as I can tell. So it's even more attenuated. That's the ridiculous thing. There, th This rule that Madison Square Garden had, as dumb as it is, and I want to note that a judge has already gone on the record saying, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Um, the, the rule was theoretically that people could imagine a slip and fall. You don't want lawyers showing up and having ex parte conversations with potential witnesses. So therefore we should ban them from the, the, the venue. That argument, as attenuated as it may be, uh, doesn't really apply to almost all of these exclusions. They're excluding people over who are averse to them in shareholder actions. They're yeah, it's but real bad. Doing it with facial recognition. That's the thing that was that's shocking what, yes. to me. Yes. They, and they and that's where we get to. That's when we get yeah. to Big Brother. But you know what? If they're worried about slip and fall, shouldn't they just take the entire New York State bar and bar everybody from Madison right. Garden? Where would they be if they banned all the lawyers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they wouldn't have anybody in those lower seats. I'll say that. Um, you, yeah, so they're using facial recognition technology. And at this point, it's been weirdly good. Uh, <laughs> not good in a moral sense, but they've been managing to catch people off of firm headshots uh, because they're catching people who aren't even involved in the lawsuits against them, but are also on the firm website, which I don't know about anybody else, but my headshot on the firm website was a good 10 years old by the time I left the firm. So how it's able to figure that out is kind of impressive. Uh, I do think that eventually they're going to have a, because we've talked before about how facial recognition technology has a known racial discrimination bias issue. Uh, I am waiting for the moment when they kick somebody out of the out who is not in fact involved because it's misidentified random person of color as a lawyer involved. Uh, but the thing that I wrote this week, which is not as much legal techie, but it's related to this story. Uh, so Randy Mastow from uh, Gibson Dunn is representing them. And 
he said in court when asked about this policy, he reached for the analogy that, you know, when I was a prosecutor and we were going after the mob, you know, the mob made sure that I couldn't get reservations at some Italian restaurants. So, and I'm like, you know, when you're reaching for an analogy and your analogy for what your client does is, hey, the mafia does it too. Maybe, maybe don't use that analogy. Maybe, maybe it's not really helpful. Why? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. Like yeah. it's a New York court. They're used to this. Yeah. Yeah. Really. So, uh, Joe, I, I think there are a couple points to be raised, and the first of which yeah. is uh, the technology isn't just relying on one photo and one source, right? Oh, so they're okay. taking these headshots and comparing them for, uh, algorithmically against millions of other sorts of pictures to build this profile of an appearance, right? Yeah. And then they look for that profile, not the headshot, but the profile derived from all of these. So it's a question of privacy policy violations across right. multiple services. It's uh, a question, again, right, of identity appropriation that we have to worry about. And, and before we even get into the I use this technology to punish my enemies kind of point of view. Uh, so there is a lot, legally speaking, behind should they be applying this technology in the way that they are based on the source yeah. data alone. If you look at Illinois, they have a biometric protection law, right? And we see these big tech companies repeatedly having to either cancel the technology or make huge payouts and settlements to Illinois residents because they let people tag other people on their service. Uh, and guess what? That's biometric identification. Yeah, I uh, I actually I, I referenced that Illinois law the other day. I was on WGN talking about this issue, and I said, like, you know, this doesn't even happen in Chicago. They have rules. <laughs> the, the other wonderful thing that Randy said, and that's that quote that you had in your story was, hey, yeah. lawyers sometimes alienate people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think? Uh. Um, yeah. Uh, I, think it, I think it also sort of illustrates that I think there's so much focus on the the danger of the government, but to see how commercial enterprises can be just as dangerous as the misuse of information by government, if not more, because they have smarter people working for them and they have more money. So it's really frightening. I mean, how is the government going to even come up with laws to anticipate all these misuses? Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, we haven't talked about chat GPT, chat GPT. Should we, is there anything, anything we well, should be I, talking about there? Should we, uh, we should just, we talked about devoting the show for the full year, but, uh, can I, can I quickly throw one thing in, uh, yeah. David Latt or David Latt earlier today on Twitter, uh, tweeted out that he had plugged into chat GPT right about the Supreme court in the style of Ellie Mistal and wow, wow. It's good. Uh, really? That's the first time I've actually been impressed by chat GPT. Is but it who owns the copyright? It... Who owns yeah, let me see if I can find it. Let me see if I can get it. Chat here. GPT does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would assume. So uh, there are a couple interesting things coming out of chat GPT in the last week. Uh, the week prior, there was the who does chat, chat GPT think is influential in legal tech, which we all had yeah. fun interacting with. Yeah. 
Uh, but uh, our old friend John Flood, who's now in Australia, actually is putting out a chat GPT detection tool for legal academics. Oh. And so can you identify if your students are using chat GPT as a part of their homework? Interesting. Yeah, and I saw that on social media. Let me see if I can find an article on it. Yeah. Well, there, yeah, but, there, I, yeah. but could there come a day when you'll get into trouble for not using chat GDP for your homework? <laughs> well, and that's talk sort of the problem. Yeah. You know, like sometimes it's actually like, like what happens when we've already had the situation where it, it, these catch softwares think like, oh, you know, I see enough. And it's like, yeah, what if I use chat GPT to create a draft and then I made massive amounts of changes to it? Am I going to be stuck with that? I, you know. Yeah. Wasn't there also sort of a reverse story this week where somebody saw something that was created by ChatGPT uh, and recognized their own text in it. Uh, and there was some kind of a, a plagiarism lawsuit or something. I, against I saw the... something from a musician where a musician was objecting to someone uh, publishing music and songs in his style. So I, and I think he's probably not the only one. Yeah. Uh, and there was also the story that the Washington Post ran this week on uh, uh, one of the tech magazines, I forget which one now, and, and the fact that it started producing news stories on its website using ChatGPT, but did not disclose the fact that it was doing that. It, it, it bylined the stories as something like our, you know, finance staff or something like that. Um, and, and somebody caught wind of this, somebody got suspicious and started to realize that it was being generated by uh, AI. And then as they started looking into the stories under those bylines, they started discovering error after error after error in those stories, forcing the publication to then start having to post correction after correction after correction, uh, which was interesting because they also claimed uh, that when they later said, yeah, in fact, this was ChatGPT, they claimed that their editors had copy edited and reviewed these stories before posting them. So hard to say whether this was a chat GPT fail or a uh, editorial fail, but uh, either way, it was definitely a journalistic fail. But, you know, I, I more than I think 10 years ago, ALM told me they were experimenting with some kind of software to write brief stories. So they do it now, ALM radar. Yeah. Is that what it's called? ALM radar or something like that? But I mean, this was radar. before that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I don't think the idea of writing brief synopses, I mean, because really that's mostly what the news sources I'm aware of are using it for. But I mean, when you're talking about writing a brief or a Supreme Court opinion, we get into different territory. Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody who files a brief or Supreme Court opinion using purely AI without at least editing it a little bit uh, might be uh, in trouble. But um, Bob, I did have one story and it was the story, yeah. the, the Google, there was a story that seemed to be a follow-up on the red alert story. It was in the New York Times today. And it talks about how uh, they, Larry Brin, Larry Page and, and um, Sergey Brin came back and they have been interacting with the company actively for the past couple of months. And they talked about, apparently, I'm guessing that the reporter got a hold of a PowerPoint. And in the PowerPoint, 
uh, or in the presentation, the Google talked about how their reluctance to compete with uh, whatever it is, JPG chat, is that they were afraid of bias and that when they compared their use of AI, there was more bias in the products that they were developing when compared to GBT. So that was that was my takeaway from the story today, but it sounds like, you know, it continued. And I just sort of was wondering whether this wasn't almost like a, a PR piece from Google saying we're on it, we're, we're really gonna try and compete in this space. Yeah, that's interesting. It's. I think we we all forget that uh, OpenAI is only one company out there that's that's working on this stuff, and and uh, they're getting the limelight right now, uh, and uh, good good marketing. But there's going to be a lot of stuff coming out this year from other companies, and I I I, I already know that. I mean, I, well, from what I've heard, some of the other legal tech companies that are working on products in the space are working with uh, the uh, the. Uh, the uh, the AI from other other companies, so uh, definitely going to heat up a lot a lot of competition this year. Yeah, I know of one, and I'm under an NDA, so I can't say a word about it. Okay, just hold up. We hold all up we fingers. All <laughs> yeah. Is everybody under the same NDA? <laughs> Probably. Um, uh, it, I kind of feel like uh, they should just like brief us together, right? We keep talking about this, but it's always like, yeah. I'm telling you something in secret, but I'm also briefing. telling everybody else you know. Right. <laughs> but yeah. we can't talk to each other. Uh, welcome to the world. Um, all right. Um, anything else? Anybody else want to raise their hand and say anything about what we've been talking about? Anybody else out there in the audience? Uh, here's your last chance to speak or forever till next week, hold your peace. Um, I, and, I wanted uh, to hear Joe yeah. go on about the uh, the Supreme Court non-memo, non-investigation. Non yeah. yeah well, we'll sit um, back and listen to that for a while. Yeah, no, um, it was, it was a, it was a thing. Actually, I believe the story, which was not up earlier, I think it may be now, here we go. Uh, everything you need to know about the Supreme Court leak, but the justices were afraid to ask, uh, is the title. Uh, it is right here. Uh, yeah, no, it's, um, it's it's a hell of a thing, you know. Um, yeah, it, it dominated my whole day, so I'm glad uh, I'm glad I'm finally done with having to deal with this. But you know, it it was interesting that you, what you have, and now I'm not necessarily talking tech uh, in these last couple of minutes, but what you have is this situation where there's tech elements and also it you know uh investigatory scope elements and they brought in michael chertoff to to like vet the system and then his report which is only a page long is like oh i think the marshal did everything that they could in a thorough manner within their legal parameters or something like that and I'm like, well, see, you know, that's very interesting qualifying language, uh, especially in a world in which they seem to have cut out a bunch of people. And he is you know, like, you see these things all the time in, in, in uh, internal investigations, and it's always so ridiculous. Anyway, uh, but they did have this IT thing. We talked about this at the beginning of the show, but uh, it was... 
they seem to have no handle on whether or not people print things out in their system, which, you know, seems like that's important if you're trying to keep a secret. Yeah, good to know. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we made it through the hour. Uh, we thought you would have to listen to just Joe and I ramble on for uh, 60 minutes. But I mean, and been... what would be wrong with that, huh, well, everybody? But still. Well, only the me part of it. Um, but uh, uh, thanks, uh, thanks to Gene for showing up. I know you had some other issues to deal with today. And uh, thanks to Josh for stepping in. And uh, Buzz, uh, thanks for your uh, voiceover mm -hmm. commentary. I really appreciate that as well. So everybody have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. See you next thanks, week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Bye, all. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> nah,